Hello and welcome to Ideas Matter. In this episode, we feature the final full-length lecture in our series, The Elite, Old and New. The talk is entitled, What's Wrong with the Professional Managerial Class? The term professional managerial class was coined in 1977. Thinkers on both left and right have drawn attention to the rise and rise of a seemingly new group in society who neither labour in traditional occupations nor own significant amounts of capital. This group of salaried professionals in the civil service, education, management, public relations and public health not only increasingly manage the key institutions of society, They are also said to exert a social and ideological influence, promoting progressive campaigns around gender, sexual, racial and other identity causes. But who are this group? Can it really be said to be a class? And how do they differ from more familiar elites? The lecturer is Catherine Liu, Professor of Film and Media Studies at University of California, Irvine, and the author of Virtue Hoarders, The Case Against the Professional Managerial Class. Given up on any attempts within my profession to uh, prove that I'm smart or worthy, and um, that's a professional break, I guess, with the protocols, but also one of the privileges of just having been around a really long time and um, sort of valuing my own experience rather than looking for um, the new or the innovative. I mean, one of the things that I think um, are the profession, the professional managerial classes manage to do now is to always look for um, a kind of edgelordism. And I want to just cite my colleague Judith Butler at UC Berkeley as being guilty of one of these attempts to um, um, promote a kind of approach to gender that uh, she finds uh, avant-garde or something. And um, in her recent article in The Guardian, she actually accuses anyone who doesn't agree with her version of gender theory and gender performativity of being a fascist. And um, people online went crazy when I mentioned that, but they didn't read the article. And the article very clearly states that if you do not agree with this form of gender um, performativity, you are aligning yourself with Bolsonaro, with Orban. And so um, this kind of conformity within the woke world, within academia that I find and all of you find oppressive, I'm hearing much to my delight because I come out of meetings and I think, have we all lost our minds, really? Um, um, this kind of um, impetus within um, even very successful academics who've been pioneers of theories that I don't necessarily agree with to remain relevant and innovative has in my book, you know, um, been demonstrated that I like to, I like to show as a kind of deprofessionalization within the elites itself. And I think that many of you talked about this. I only came in on the tail end of the discussion with Claire Fox because it's early in the morning, fairly early in the morning here, and I had to walk my dog and do all sorts of other things that I do in the morning. So I apologize. But I think that you were all um, looking at this kind of top-down demand for um, innovation and entrepreneurial, I'm not going to say, let's just say innovation. That is actually what's feeding the elite's um, 
um, desire for wokeness. And my theory about the hyper wokeness and the ways in with like someone like Judith Butler's now policing thought, policing feminists. What well, I have a couple thoughts about that. One is that um, it is about humiliating the working class and non-college educated people. Um, Claire talked about not about speech and oiks. We don't have that kind of division in the United States so much. I mean, there are regional accents, but it's not that pronounced. I mean, when I do go to New York, I start talking like this, but and uh, my husband goes, why are you saying talk? And I'm like, oh yeah, I'm talking like this. But so I've kind of eliminated that from my accent, but it's not so clearly demarcated. So um, one of the things that happens, I think now, as um, the humanities and social sciences are chasing um, external donor money, have lost confidence in any kind of um, reasonable um, commitment to research and consensus is that what they want to do is actually produce a kind of empty distinction that makes, that excludes the working class. So their language of inclusivity is about excluding working class people. It's very, and non-college educated people. And then people like, I would just say Marxists like me who would just refuse this language. Let me give you an example of how this policing works within the professional managerial classes itself to manage our relationship, because I'm in this class with working class people. I was talking to a friend of mine who was talking about the Democratic Socialists of America, which for me is an organization that showed a lot of promise during the Bernie years after 2016, and now has been completely taken over by the PMC ethos. Um, so, um, unfortunately, she told me the story that I unfortunately posted on Twitter. She said a friend of hers was organizing hotel room cleaners. My aunt is one of, is a hotel room cleaner. And, um, uh, she took the, a, a group of women to a local democratic socialist of America organizing meeting and, um, when everyone was doing their introductions and introducing their pronouns, um, these women quietly left. So naively, in like March, I posted, uh, because I thought like one of the most important things about being a leftist is being able to be critical of our relationship to the people, to working classes. Um, I posted that, you know, if we really want to build a mass movement, maybe this pronoun ritual, which they which I was also accused of being like dismissive of, um, should not be the way that we um, introduce ourselves at meetings um, because it's unfamiliar and disorienting for working class people. And people attacked me on Twitter. It was unbelievable. They said, you know, I'm a member of a union, um, 10 people, everyone accepts pronouns. You're looking down on working class people. Um, you're transphobic. Have you ever been misgendered? And it was like, excuse me? There are no um, differences in Chinese between the genders, in he, her, in homophonically. Um, in terms of the written language, Chinese adopted a gender pronoun differentiation to imitate Western um, languages. So if you know Chinese, I'm, and I won't go into this, but so my father and members of my family who did not speak English well misgendered me and my brother and sister every single day of our lives. And we survived to speak of this. But um, 
I was thinking about my aunt, who might have been on her feet 12 hours a day, cleaning hotel rooms, and then she comes to this room of these little cocky, you know, um, Brooklyn hipsters, and the last thing she wants to do is get an English lesson. You know, like, she just wants to go home and cook for a kid, right? So, um, the fact that none of these people could project themselves into this position, but also felt the need to condemn me in, in this um, public arena, Twitter, which, you know, is probably completely dominated by PMC people. My mistake, but I thought it was a really interesting and slightly traumatic um, test case for myself. But um, this kind of elite formation of this language is all about um, linguistic and social humiliation of the um, working class other. Fortunately, like, um, as Claire said, one of the things I do remain optimistic about is that the majority of people in America do not go to college. This is a terrible fact for woke people and for the Democratic Party, actually, but 67% of Americans do not attend university. I think the number, I don't know what the equivalent numbers are in the, U, in the UK. I think it might be, actually because of it, the expansion of the university systems, it might be about the same now. It used to be, um, there the were higher numbers in the UK of people who didn't um, go to college. So um, that is one of my um, introductory um, comments. The other thing is that I studied the 17th and 18th centuries, and I was really, really interested in court life for some reason. In, and I realized it was like in preparation for this. In court life, in under Louis XIV, this kind of like absolute monarch. And one of the things that the courtiers did, of all genders, was innovate language um games and salon language games and a lot of feminists in the 80s and 90s did rightfully show that many of the women the female dominated salons um became like para court spaces where elites would innovate ways new ways of speaking to each other so they almost had like completely hermetic insular languages that they would talk to each other in and then if you were introduced to the court or to their salon that you were introduced to this language and your mastery of this language um was and they were called the precieux like preciosity comes from these groups of women and they were really um, innovative on two levels. They um, created a sense of um, selection for the aristocracy that just wasn't based on um, your birth. So you can be like a complete lug idiot who was born into, you know, the the Duchy of Dijon, then you got to belong. No, you, if you were a complete idiot, you didn't get to be in the um, most rarefied circles of these salons. One, so they were more meritocratic, to use an anachronistic term. And then two, they were feminists, like, you know, another aristoc um, anachronistic term, because they were dominated by these aristocratic women. So it's very class. So the, the class formation doesn't change. But rather than having Louis XIV dictate who belongs where and where, how, which is how he terrorized the aristocracy of France at Versailles and weakened them and secured his power, you had these like, um, parallel worlds, these salons dominated by women who were, who allowed a kind of educated, a tiny, tiny group of educated people, because in France, I think there were, you know, there were maybe 200,000 people at the time who were actually even literate, right? 
So you allowed, you, you were differentiating within this group of 200,000 people living off the taxation of the illiterate peasants to innovate and refine their social ways of being. So when I saw this, I mean, since the 80s, when multiculturalism and all this new language came up, when I saw that and its acceleration, I really thought, okay, this is the creation of an elite within an elite. <clears throat> so um, that will um, humiliate and exclude those who are not willing or not capable of participating in a purely performative language game. So um, that's that's sort of the intellectual background of this talk. And I mean, I am going to show you some slides and I'm going to be... Um, informal today, but um, I think many of the things that I'm going to talk about in the slides actually uh, resonate with what I heard at the end of um, the discussion around Claire Fox's presentation. But um, what I wanted to also say was that the kind of education that I received or the kind of research that I wanted to pursue is almost impossible today, like because of the uh, the um, environment within academia. The, 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 the path that I followed was, I thought, the most rational path and led me, you know, to Marxism. <laughs> the most reasonable, it is the most reasonable and most accurate and most methodologically sound way of understanding history and culture and political economy and violence. Um, that path now is so deeply obstructed for um, young scholars, researchers, that, you know, that's what I hold in despair. And I'm almost thinking that to be outside of academia now, to work your, to work your um, day job and pursue a line of research outside of it is to escape the censoriousness of academia. Because it's not just, because what I wanted to describe to you was um, a lot of my graduate student, not a lot, you know, a handful of graduate students who are in, who are working with me and in, in the other classes, in these cultural milieu, are really, um, ha have or are, you know, really suffering from this kind of sense of intellectual persecution and their outsiderishness. And I kind of think like, I don't, that the para-academic space will produce more intellectually, um, useful, politically useful things right now. I mean, from the right, people have already understood that the university itself is completely bankrupt and is reproducing a kind of um, liberal progressive conformity that is um, totally choking any kind of real kind of dis possibility of disagreement, debate, advancement. And so they've started, I know you guys have heard about this, this new university called the University of Austin with all our favorite like CIA-sponsored CIA um, people like Neil Ferguson, um, Bar Barry Weiss, um, I can't think of the rest of that illustrious crew, but they are, Andrew Sullivan, so they are um, going to start a new university and I don't know whether get get their funding or something like that, but they... I'd be like, okay, this is cool, right? And um, conservatives feel marginalized. Like, I want open debate. Yeah, I'll debate any of them. I mean, I'll de debate anyone to death, except, you know, right now no one wants to debate. Um, and they use this term that I think betrays their entire pro program and project, entrepreneurialism, 
What the hell does that have to do with the so-called liberal arts education that they want to reinstall? That is bullshit. You know, entrepreneurialism basically means like you get up in the morning, you hustle three jobs um, to survive. I don't know what else it means. Or, or you in a, at, at, at the working class level, at the PMC level, it means like trying to be like the edge lord or lady of the moment and um, creating a new app to measure your periods or your menopause or whatever. These are things that people think are innovative and entrepreneurial. So they just portray their hand to me when they use that word entrepreneurial. I'm like, yeah, okay, you guys are trying to like disrupt education that that model of like silicon valley assholery is over now because everyone knows that what they created were these surveillance modules and um uh, monopolies and so if that's what you want to do that's what you want to say that you're teaching people how to be entrepreneurial no working class person needs to be entrepreneurial i've heard so many stories about um high school students get up at 6 a.m go to school come home at three, do homework for an hour, go to their jobs from five to 11, go to sleep at midnight, get up in the morning. Is that entrepreneurial? I don't know, but um, they don't need to learn it from Neil Ferguson. Okay, so um, I could go on like this, but I do want to get to the question and answer period. So um, I'm going to share my screen and show you a little bit about what I've been um, thinking about because you can ask me about the book. It's in the world. Um, Jacob mentioned that I'm working on this new project, and um, so I'm very, very interested in the ideology of feeling and suffering and help and the spectacle of suffering as it has been mobilized by the professional managerial class in our times. So um, I'm working on, on a book on trauma studies and the configuration of trauma at the moment when I suggest the professional managerial class comes to its um to the height of its class hegemony that it has been trying to preserve since that time, which I would say is about around the fall of the Berlin Wall, um, around the victory that they feel like they secured over communism in 1989. So um, I'm working on this thing on trauma, on trauma studies, and I very like facetiously in my mind am calling it the PMC has a trauma, but um, that's probably not going to be the title of the book. And my editors were very terrified of it. I was like, here's the uh, here's the outline. And they're like, um, maybe we, not, we need to see some more stuff. But what I really want to do is get to the bottom of how we have decided that lived experience is enough justification for any political, intellectual, academic program. How did that happen? And... Um, I guess I'm a nerd and I need to find out like the intellectual roots of it. I'm not just going to argue with people and say that is absurd, but um, because I think it is really, I am really interested in these affectual formations as I tried to demonstrate very briefly in my discussion of, you know, the older project that my dissertation was based on and my first book was based on. I, I'm really interested in how a class schools itself to um, assume power and dominate and exclude uh, other people. How a class's values become um, absolutely hegemonic. And so I did that with the sort of evolution of the aristocracy and how it gives way to mercantile bourgeois thinking uh, like before the enlightenment. And then, um, and now I'm sort of interested in how the PMC has taken this category of lived experience 
and used it and mobilized it against the working class as an instrument of its technocratic managerialism in order to preserve the depredations of capital. So that's the background. I mean, okay, I really, really need to do my research on this, and this is, like, very new, so I'm also kind of having fun because I'm showing you guys, like, the... um a moment in my research. And since I know I'll be attacked, I, I, I'm I really going to get my dot my eyes and uh, cross my T's. And I know it doesn't even fucking matter because those people don't even care about professional academic standards anymore. Okay, so um, with that rant, I'm going to share my screen. Hold on a second. So um, I'm not going to pause too much on this image, but I just want to give you a sense of it. The caption to this image from the ASPCA, the Association of Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, is Report Animal Cruelty, Take Action. I had a boxer, Pitbull, uh, pass away recently, and this picture um, really, this image just traumatizes me very much. So I'm supposed to report anyone who has abused their animal, but I'm also supposed to give money to the ASPCA. So I'm really interested in how, okay, that's such a PMC word. I am outraged, puzzled, deeply disturbed by how images of suffering have become so easily consumable to us, offering us reified or commodified ways of responding to crises. They, these images produce this kind of emotion and then they offer a very simple solution, that is, report on perpetrators and donate to charities. Um, the, the term reify, reification comes out of Georg Lukács' work on history and class consciousness. Um, I'm going to explain it very, very briefly. We can come back to it later. But reification for um, Lukács really has to do with the configuration of subjectivity to fit like a gear into the machinery of capital. So when you are experiencing, and we experience reified um, emotions and subjective reactions all the time. Those things should be the most foreign to you. Like when you have a PMC moment, I have them a lot. Um, you should understand that is the least individuated to you, particular to you. That is actually when your subjectivity has been so formulated or, or prefabbed by um, the machinery of capital that um, you've, your reaction fits like a gear into capitalism's um, machinations, into the ideology of the PMC. For instance, like I have really, really like terrible feelings when I throw out my plastic containers now because China no longer takes um, plastic from the U.S. And so things that I was doing, like feeling good about myself by throwing the um, plastic bottle into my recycling bin, I can no longer do because thankfully the Chinese have reached a period of a level of economic um, um, development, prosperity. They're like, you know what? We're not going to take your horrible plastics from you. You guys deal with that plastic. So now we're not recycling plastic anymore in California. And I feel guilty about this. So why do I feel guilty about this? Because environmental movements have completely individualized 
the solution to the environmental crisis. And so it's about me, my choices with regard to um, recycling that has um, created this, that has actually created the environmental crisis. Choose to um, not um, um, use plastics, then I am saving the world. And if I'm choosing to use plastics, not recycling them, I am destroying the world. Like this notion of individual, um, the efficacy of individual action, as opposed to just like getting Chevron and the petrochemical companies to stop producing so much plastic, that kind of depoliticization is deeply, deeply part of this notion of the reified subjectivity that meets the objective world. And I know this, but I still feel this way every day. And I'm like, the worst thing about this position attitude is that the professional managerial classes have so individualized the notion of environmental salvation that I think they actually live with plastic shaming um, working class and poor people for whom they're, they, you know, glass containers are simply not um, affordable. Anyway, so I can go on. So that's my, so reification I do recommend everyone read um, Lukács' History and Class Consciousness. Um, it's very much imbued with like high culture and he talks about the novel, et cetera, et cetera. But it's really a fascinating um, account of class and class formation. So um, the notion of action um, with regard to suffering that is easily sort of subsumable by a charity is really fascinating because I really think it was pioneered by the Victorian elites in England. And then, you know, the long, so you have this kind, so I'm looking at like certain segments of the French aristocracy moving to the Victorian elites and then refining um, the, and then refined by the professional managerial class at the height of the Cold War, end of the Cold War. So um, that's um, uh, in order to, for our, in our day, um, reinforce capitalism's hold on the organization of our political and economic world. And it happens through this kind of um, affectual stimulation, if you like. So um, the Society of the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals was founded in the UK in 1824, and it became the Royal Society of the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. I have a link there. Okay, I'll, I'll open the link. Um, so thank you. So as England was at the forefront of the Industrial Revolution, so it is at the forefront of this kind of elite um, reification of um, reactions to suffering and then the translation of that reaction of suffering to um, um, subsumable actions to the um, to charity formations Let's see if this so stop the suffering save lives with SPCA International this is um, the website. And so you can stop the suffering. Siri, the ambassador dog is online with you. Um, okay. I can't handle this anymore, but look at, you know, who wouldn't want to stop this and the suffering if you see this, um, 
It was founded in 1824, though, to prevent the cruel treatment to carriage horses. And one of the things about um, that, it, it does pass, the SPCA does pass um, um, laws to regula regulations, they say. They boast that they've created these regulations that um, um, make it possible um, or mandatory for carriage drivers to uh, feed the horses at proper times, to water the horses when it's really um, um, hot out. But there's never any idea that there could be a reorganization of this private means of transportation where working class carriage horse drivers might be paid more or might have a um, might have less difficult lives themselves so that their animals could be treated better. It becomes very focused on the animal and the spectacle of the animal suffering. There's like a, an image of a very sad animal and um, this uh, slogan that says, stop the suffering. Okay, so today's ASPCA director salary, according to um, Humane Watch, which is a um, watchdog organization for um, charities that are mismanaged. Um, the SPCA is ranked very low in that um, charity survey. It, it, in 2018, the SPCA, the American Society of the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals salary, his sal um, was $800,000. And the image of um, his, the images of a guy burning money. So they've, you've, we've created a new class of elites who run these charities who um, rely on these images of suffering and then translate that image of suffering into action for the PMC, which is basically donate to the organization, stop the suffering. Um, uh, I guess the uh, so so the um, websites don't work anymore. So I have I also linked to save the children. So you have these images of um, African children, mostly in the U.S. and U.K. Charities focused on save the children, and it only says ten dollars a month will save this child, fifty dollars a month will save this many children, and your act. So the spectacle of suffering translating into this action of giving money is even in these very leg follows the same logic. But save the children is um, uh, let's see more highly ranked as a as a charity that uses its contributions efficiently not like the ASPCA so um UNICEF which is one of the great progressive organizations of um the 20th century i would say like you know part of in ancillary part of the united nations that supposedly shouldn't be a controversial part of the united nations um works with children and um i you can watch this thing later, but this is a, a video that UNICEF has on its website that says that um, th um, this is a doctor in South Sudan vaccinating children, and he wants to save mothers and children, and it won't stop. Samuel Patti and the UNICEF won't stop until it, every child is vaccinated, and they serve and save mothers and children. What I was going to say is that one of the things that the professional managerial class does 
that's very, very important for post-industrial economies because we don't produce things anymore. The things that are produced that we use are mostly produced in the Pearl River Delta of South, Southern China, more and more in Vietnam as well. But the invisible activities of triage, designating the worthy and unworthy objects of charity and service is now one of the most important activities of the professional managerial class. And producing distinction, distinction of all sorts, like uh, within um, ranked universities, prizes and awards, and also um, worthiness and unworthiness is critical to financialized economies. And I actually have this long, Thing about class violence and Marx on the working day about, you know, he describes in very, very graphic detail the ways in which children were working in the Staffordshire factory, ceramics factories, um, the way in which women were working in the um, embroidery factories of Northern England. And in the violence of the working day, Marx is just completely satirical about the absolute cruelty of the working day in um, 1850 UK. And he does talk about how many of these people who joined and gave many of the bourgeois elites and capitalists who joined and gave money to the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals looks upon the child, the stunted child in Staffordshire covered in um, ceramics dust with total indifference because that capitalist wants to extract the maximum amount of labor from the laborer itself. From the labor, it's from labor itself, and so this level of abstraction with regard to suffering and economic analysis is what I want to retain in my work and what Virtue Hoarders is based on. You've been listening to What's Wrong with the Professional Managerial Class, a lecture given by Catherine Liu at the Academy Online event in November 2021. This is the concluding lecture from this series on the elite, old and new. But do look out for the return of the Academy in 2022, when we will host our first face-to-face -face event since 2019. Any financial donation you can make to support the work of the BOI, whether the Academy or any of our other projects such as Debating Matters Schools Championships, will be very much appreciated. To support us, please visit theboi.co.uk forward slash donate. That's it for this series, but do subscribe to Ideas Matter on your favourite podcast feed, and we'll meet again when we return next year. 